Amen. I want to say good morning again to everybody. I know I was up here the shelves earlier, but uh, good morning and welcome to Connect Church. If we haven't met, like I said, my name is Roland. I'd love to get to meet you if we haven't met before. Um, I don't often get to be at the 10 or the 8 because I'm across the way normally with our young people at the Forge. So it really is an honor and a privilege to be here and to get to be able to unpack God's Word with you this morning. If you're new with us or if you haven't been with us or haven't been able to be with us uh, for a number of weeks, we are right in the beginning of a new series called A New Way to Live. And essentially what that series is, is it's an unpacking or it's a series on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus. Essentially what the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus' great exposition of what true righteousness is, what a truly righteous life before God looks like. Jesus teaches his disciples and those around him in this moment when he's preaching on the mount, he's teaching them that honoring God is not just about outward action. He's teaching them that about he's teaching them about a righteous life which has got to do with thoughts. It's got to do with heart attitude. It's got to do with our motives. This this teaching that Jesus brings, the reason why it's so profound is that it, it brought about and brings about, when you read it and understand it, a paradigm shift in the way we think about righteousness and what God actually expects of his people. Jesus unpacks the difference between external performance and inner obedience. And if you've been with us, you'll know that we've spoken about what it means to be salt and light. Brad, unpack that. Last week, how it unpacked what Jesus meant by not destroying the law, but coming to fulfill it, and how our righteousness needs to exceed those, that of the Pharisees. And where Jesus picks up after that, and where we're going to pick up after that, is a launch into six different distinctives or six different examples that Jesus gives. These ideas in the verses that lie ahead, Jesus deals with anger, he deals with lust, he deals with divorce, he deals with lying, he deals with hatred. And, and in each of these situations and in each of these issues and areas of our life, Jesus calls us to commit ourselves not only to obeying the external requirements of God's command, but also to be eternally, in, internally obedient to him. Jesus essentially encourages us or commands us to allow the Spirit of God to manage our thoughts, our emotions, and our motives. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first of uh, the six of these contrasts, which is anger. And we're going, to, we're going to unpack that under four headings, which I think best sum up what Jesus is saying in the verses that we're going to be dealing with. And the four points we're going to look at, the first one is do not murder. The second one is do not murder in your heart. The third is reconciliation is important. And the fourth is reconciliation is urgent. Before we get into this, I just want to say and preface this quickly. Point number two is the longest. Point number two is like the meat. It is the sermon, basically. So if by the end of point number two we're running out of time and you go, shucks, there's still two more points if you're good at maths, don't panic, right? Don't panic. We will get home on time. Sermon point number two is the longest. So let's read together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, 
that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So point number one, do not murder. This is really not a complicated command to understand. This is really not that difficult. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. What he's, what he's quoting here, what he's approving here, is God's command in the Ten Commandments. He's quoting it from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. He's specifically command number six, which says, thou shalt not murder or commit murder. Jesus is affirming this. He's saying, don't do it. It's good. It's right. You'd be hard-pressed to, to stand up in maybe a public space or, or a private space with people around you and go, I do not believe we should murder. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who disagrees with you. If you do, run from them quickly. There's this universal acceptance of this law. Every country that I know of has got as part of its laws the, the law not to commit murder. It is not lawful for you or for someone to take the life of another human being. Every country that has that law has got severe punishments in place or repercussions for people who murder, sometimes even incurring the death penalty. This is one command that we can all appreciate whether you believe in God or not. We know it instinctively. We know murder is wrong. To physically end the life of another human being, we know deserves judgment by human courts and ultimately by God. If you were to ask somebody, are you a good person? Because this murdering of somebody and, and, and that sort of like extreme response is used as a measuring stick, if you had to ask somebody if they're a good person, they'd probably say something like, uh, yeah, I'm a good person. I mean, I haven't killed anybody. That's, that's what we do. It, it's, it's so commonly held that this is a bad thing that we, that we use it as a dividing line to distinguish between good people and bad people. Because I haven't murdered anybody, I'm basically good. I'm not Genghis Khan. I'm not Stalin. I'm not Ted Bundy or Osama bin Laden. I'm not Shaka Zulu or Hitler. I'm good. They're bad. There's a line that we draw. They've murdered. They've committed mass murder. I'm on this side. So I'm good. Now, obviously, we use other standards, but this is one of the most basic. This is one of those rules or those laws that make us feel safe about ourselves. Bad people murder, and since I haven't murdered anybody, I'm good. You drive past Polesmore, you might be having a bad day. You drive past Polesmore, and you realize you haven't been obedient to God, but you look at the prison, and you go, gee, so it's so much better. At least I'm not there. Those are, as my kids would say, the real baddies. I'm pretty good with God. I haven't murdered anybody. But Jesus 
strips away our legalistic interpretation in the next verse and exposes something that many of us are comfortable with. Jesus starts to unpack for us that there is actually a sickness in our hearts that we all carry. And just because you haven't gone as far as physically murdering somebody doesn't mean you haven't been on that road. So point number two, do not murder in your heart. Here Jesus wants to unpack a deeper truth for us. He wants to unpack the right way to live in the kingdom, a new way that was contrary to the way people were thinking righteousness or righteous living was all about. He says in verse 22, but I tell you, You've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, a rocker, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is not undermining the command not to murder. He's adding to it. He's saying, you've understood this, but let me, there's something more. There's something deeper here. It's not just about not taking somebody's life. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, had watered down and dumbed down God's command. They had reduced righteousness to external obedience to the word of God. And they had totally negated to take into consideration motive, thoughts, attitudes. And as a result, they were able to stand before God and each other with relative confidence. In fact, sometimes extreme confidence. Thinking that they were innocent and righteous and attained God's standards regarding this particular sin and others. I've not taken physical life, and so I'm good. But Jesus teaches in this verse that murder is not just a physical act. Murder is actually a matter of the heart. You see, we like to stand off at a distance. We like to point at people. We like to go, they are the ones who are bad. We don't like to feel uncomfortable. And so we draw hard lines. We draw extreme lines. It's only when you physically outworked the act of murder that you're bad, that you're a murderer. And we can sometimes feel so confident about where we're at before the Lord. They are the ones, those serial killers, those murderers, those rapists, those thieves who steal a lot of money. They are the ones who are deserving of hell, not me. We draw this line and we put people on this side and we stand here and, and we point. But what Jesus does in this verse is he rubs out our line and he draws a circle around every single one of us. He says the only body, the only person outside, the only somebody that's outside that circle is me. You're all murderers, he says. He says anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is saying is that anybody who is angry and in their anger insults somebody openly or privately to their face or behind their backs, within their heart, that person has committed murder. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this sin and this sickness that would cause you in anger to say stuff about somebody, to impugn their character, to degrade them. 
that same sickness is as punishable with eternal death in the fires of hell as much. It's as much punishable as that person who would actually physically take the life of somebody. I just want to clarify two points quickly before we move on. Jesus is not saying the emotion of anger is the same as the physical act of murder. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is also not saying that anger as an emotion in and of itself is a sin. We know this because Jesus himself was angry. He didn't murder. Jesus himself was angry and didn't sin. I think there's a place for righteous anger and righteous indignation. There are certain things we need to be righteously angry about. Like Jesus in the temple and the money lenders in the temple where he went and he processed his anger and made a whip and then went to them and sorted them out and turned over tables. Jesus didn't sin. I think there's a place for that. What Jesus is talking about, what Jesus is speaking about and unpacking here is what we choose to do with our anger and how we choose to respond in our anger is important. It's that what makes us murderous in our hearts, not the emotion itself. It's that, it's that anger that rises up in your heart when you don't get your way. It's that, it's that selfish anger that would cause you to slander another human being, cause you to call them rocker or fool. You might not understand that word. You might think it's an acronym. It's not. Rocker is the equivalent of calling somebody an idiot or a moron or an empty-headed person or stupid. And, you know, the list goes on. There's even worse names we can call people. It's really a, a statement you make in anger about the worthiness or the worthlessness of somebody's mind. It's a deep insult. Then Jesus says, if you call someone fool, this, this is a statement that we make and it's, it's really a judgment on somebody's character. When you say to somebody, you fool, what, you, what you're saying to them is you're worthless, you're nothing, you're a nothing to me, you're useless to society, you're, you're a nobody. And again, of course, it's different to calling an action foolish. Jesus is not saying that we can't say that's foolish to do or that person's acting foolish. He's saying when in anger you call out, you fool, and what you mean is you're nothing, you're worthless. I hate you. You're stupid. So essentially, what Jesus is describing here is contempt for another human being. A writing off of somebody, accounting them as nothing and worthless. That's what he's describing. I could care nothing about you, you think. Jesus says when we anger and harbor this contempt towards somebody, when in anger we, we belittle or degrade or impugn another person's character, there's murder in our hearts. That's what he's saying. This doesn't mean we're actively contemplating the act of murder. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that, that same sickness, that same dark seed, which when fully expressed, expresses itself in murder, is active in your heart in that moment. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's the same road. And just because you haven't reached the end of the journey, just because you haven't in your anger and your contempt and your malice towards somebody and your frustration and hatred towards somebody, just because you haven't actually reached the end of the road and taken their life doesn't mean you haven't been on that road. That's what Jesus is saying. Man, and that makes us feel uncomfortable. Jesus wants you to consider the truth that the seeds of murder are in your heart way before it's fully birthed in the physical act of murder. 
Murder begins way back in the angry words. Murder begins way back in the angry, thoughtless insults and under your breath and behind their backs, comments. It's where murder begins. It's the same spirit of death that's at work within you that would cause somebody to physically murder somebody. Just because you haven't reached the final destination doesn't mean you're not a murderer. That's what Jesus is saying. Think about this for a minute with me quickly. Murder is the ultimate expression of the destruction or destroying of a relationship. It's the most final, the the most total, the most irreversible act of contempt and ending of a relationship, destroying of a relationship. That's what murder is. Through murder, relationships are ended irreversibly. But isn't there also a death that occurs when we speak sinfully in our anger? Here's what James says in the book of James. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Poison is not something that's life-bringing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying because of our words, because of our contempt, our malice, our anger, because of our flippant disregard for people, because we think we're justified, because they've made us angry, because of our, our, our outrage and our rage, relationships will die. Relationships will die. There will be animosity, pain, heartache. There will be discord between people, a lack of peace between brothers and sisters, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. There will be discord between brothers and sisters in the church, countrymen. And here's the thing that's really hectic. God takes the destruction of relationships very seriously. In fact, so seriously, Jesus warns us in our text that apart from his saving grace, a person who shows contempt and anger towards another human being is destined for the fires of hell just as much as a person who physically murders somebody is destined for the fires of hell. That's what Jesus is saying. John, in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, 15, reiterates Jesus' warning. But yeah, he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church, and he's giving tests for authentic authentic relationship with him he says anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer he doesn't say anybody who's murdered a brother or sister is a murderer that would be stating the obvious john is unpacking something that we choose to forget or try not to think about because it includes us it means that we're placed right into you know solitary confinement it means we're in maximum security prison spiritually we want to forget about this because it doesn't make us feel comfortable we don't want to be unrighteous we don't want to be murderous but this is what john is saying he's saying you are a murderer those of you who've hated your brother brother or your sister and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them that's what John says when we show contempt and hatred towards another we show that we've lost sight of the fact that the person we are hating against speaking contemptuously against is another human being created in the image of God and loved by God who has in them the breath of God somehow think we're better than them as I was preparing for this I just felt like it would be quite easy to move on it would be quite easy to just push this aside and 
move into the really encouraging part, but I think we need to let the conviction of God set in. We need to allow our hearts to be rent open before the Lord, to pray as David that God search my heart, find if there's any offensive way in me. And so I want to ask you some questions. I want to ask us some questions before we just move on. First one is this, in your life, in, in the seemingly significant or even in the mundane, is there anger? Is there rage? When you're driving in your car, what happens? We like to joke about it, and I'm in there with you, but God doesn't joke about that. See, we like, to, we like to isolate stuff and go, oh, that's in a vacuum, really. It's just when I'm driving, it's in my car. No, it's you driving your car. It's you. You know, I heard this really good analogy about the stuff that we carry. Someone was saying we get so cross with somebody when they do something, we get anger, and we try and justify what we're doing because of what they did to us. And he said it's like carrying a full cup of coffee. If someone bumps you, yes, they made a mistake, they bumped you, maybe they did it on purpose, maybe it was by accident, but the coffee spilt out of the cup because it was in the cup in the first place. When somebody does something to us and rage and malice and contempt and anger fly out, it's in you. They just bumped you comes out of us. It's not their fault. It's in you. Rage and malice and anger and hatred and murder are in you if that comes out. What about politically motivated anger? Does your view cause you to be angry and harbor animosity and contempt towards people who don't agree with you? Let's just take the current political situation in our country. Let's, let's take the topic of land expropriation. You know how many people I've seen hating other people because of this? I don't care what party you're part of. There's just hatred and malice and anger. And your view might be right. You might have a good point. This person might have a great point. This person might have a great point. But at the end of the day, that's missed. It's drowned out. It's painted over by rage and anger and malice and hatred. It doesn't matter whether you're right or not. How do you feel about people who disagree with you politically, who disagree with you in the workplace? How do you speak about people who don't share your point of view, your perspective on something? Are they idiots, fools, dimwits, nutheads? What are they? What have you said about them? What about your, your anger towards the people closest to you? Your spouse, your children, your immediate family, your friends? One of the saddest things I find in my own life is those tiny acts of murder have been reserved for the people closest to me. We come to church, you come to church, you're viewed as all kinds of loving and gentle. You know what to say, you know how to say it, you know when to say it, you know how to hide, you know how to cover it up, you know how to pretend, you wear the mask, you've got the facade. But then when you go home to your little kingdom, to your domain, where you're the king or the queen, and something happens to cross you, rage and malice fly out of you. The mask comes off, the facade is swept away. And you speak words of death. You speak words of contempt. You mutter words of hatred and animosity. And you blame other people. And in that moment, it doesn't matter whether you were disrespected. It doesn't matter whether you were disobeyed. It doesn't matter whether you were dishonored. 
doesn't matter whether you were right. Do you see that in those moments? Do, do we realize that in those moments when you sin in your anger, do you realize when you cultivate that emotion and you allow it to fester in you, when you curse other people and show contempt for them, that you're committing an act of murder in your heart? That's what Jesus says is happening in that moment. Do you realize how offensive and displeasing and vile that is before the Lord? I was so convicted preparing this message because I thought so many times about how often I've mumbled and muttered words under my breath when, I've have, when I'm having a disagreement with my wife. I'm a married man and I'm wrong often. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> it's not a joke. How many times I've disciplined my kids in anger because I am the man of the house and I set the rules and this is how we're going to discipline our kids and they mess up and I'm expecting them to behave like a teenager but they're only four or two years old. How many times I've dishonored people I don't know in my car, listening to them on the radio, watching them on TV. How many times I've just gone, yeah, you're stupid. Do you see yourself? Do you see yourself the way that you should see yourself? Do you recognize that that same sickness is in you? Do you recognize your need for Jesus? Do you recognize your guilt? Do you understand that your thoughts and your heart attitude is as deserving of hell as a person, say, like Hitler or Ted Bundy or Stalin? Collecting the temple next to the first broken. I need you. This is in me, and I recognize it, and I know that I'm just as bad as you. Jesus came to free you and to save you from your sin. That's the good news. Jesus came to set you free. Even though you were deserving of hell, deserving of death, Jesus took the price and the punishment upon himself so that you could receive and embrace and live in and cultivate in your life freedom and peace and joy, life and love. But I want you to know that the payment was not cheap. I have this tendency myself to think that my contribution to the cross was lesser than that of somebody that I've placed on the other side of the line. But it's not. Your contribution was as significant as the worst person you could possibly imagine. Your contribution, whether it was just an attitude or a thought or a careless word, or if it was just some contempt that was maybe not verbalized, your contribution was just as significant and drove the nails through the hands and feet of our Savior. Your contribution did that. You need to know that. And because of that, do you know that the grace of God allows you to cry out the same as a murderer would cry out who says only by the grace of God I am saved. Do you know that that's true for you even though you haven't physically murdered somebody? Jesus is risen. Death has been defeated. Sin is paid for. Grace is found in our Savior and God says repent. Repent of your malice. Repent of your sin. It doesn't matter whether you're right. It matters that you're bringing death 
to relationship. When we do this, we become people who are free, forgiven, transformed, and people who don't cultivate murder, but who cultivate reconciliation and peace and restoration, which leads us to point number three, and remember, they're short. Point number three, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of our state and his freeing of us and his enabling us to live a new way, Jesus says, now go and be reconciled. Reconciliation is important. Starting in verse 23, Jesus shows us that the overflow of true forgiveness and true life in him leads to a life of reconciliation. A life where we realize that it's important to be reconciled for unhindered worship. It's important to actively pursue reconciliation with with others instead of being angry and finger-pointing. Instead of committing acts of murder and destroying relationships, we become people who heal and restore relationship. Despite skin color, despite political views, despite disagreements or cultural differences. He says in verse 23, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. When I first read this as a young Christian, I don't know if I took Jesus too seriously and I don't know if many people do. And even those who take him seriously or think that he's being serious here, which he is, I'm I'm sure there's even fewer people who are actually obedient to this command. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. When we consider that Jesus is saying, leave your gift, go, we write it off as exaggeration for effect. But he's being very serious. And if we think it's a bit outlandish, if you, you can only imagine what the Jews of his day who are hearing this from his mouth thought. I mean, he has the context for you. Once a year, Jewish people would make a pilgrimage to the temple to go and offer sacrifices before the Lord. They would pay what they could for the best sacrifice. They would take it to the altar. They would enter into the holy place. The priest would pray for them and, and ask for forgiveness on their behalf. And they would do their once a year Yom Kippur. It was a celebration. And they would be set free. And it was a massive thing. You would travel from afar. You would travel weeks, days, sometimes months to get to the temple. It was something you look forward to. It was a time of fellowship with other people. It was significant. It was one of the most significant spiritual moments of an early ancient Jew's life. Jesus says to them, when you are at the, you're in the place where you're about to offer your sacrifice of worship to me, you're at the altar. If in that moment you realize, and it comes to mind, that someone is offended with you, leave your gift there and go make it right. He doesn't mean anything else other than do that. It would mean leave it there, Travel the days, weeks, months that you need to travel to go back to your home. Go and do what you need to do. It would be the modern day. Get in the car. Go to the airport. Buy a ticket. Fly to London. Get to Australia. Go to the States. Go to Canada. Wherever your family is, go and sort it out. It means go. Drive to Joburg. Drive to Port Elizabeth. Go to your son and go wherever it is you need to go. Drive to the northern suburbs. Go to Hart Bay if you need to. Go wherever it is that you need to go to go make right. Leave your gift there and go. In that moment, and this is where we seem to feel like we're not being spiritual if we believe this, but we are. We're being something else if we're not. Jesus says what's more important in that moment is reconciliation. Reconciliation is more important in that moment than your worship. 
than being at church. Reconciliation is more important than going through the religious motions or exercises you go through during the week or on a Sunday. Reconciliation is more important than fulfilling your service duties at church. Jesus says, instead of thinking that you're honoring me, honor me instead by going and being reconciled to your brother and to your sister. That's what's most important. I mean, isn't this what God is? has done and is doing isn't God in the business of reconciling a broken and lost people to him is that not what he's doing is that not why we worship him and what we're grateful for is that not what we celebrate who he is and what he's done this work of reconciliation it is and so Jesus says go and do the same don't think that your worship is in spirit and in truth if you're sitting here and there's broken relationship in your family don't think that your worship is acceptable to him if you haven't done everything within your power to redeem. It doesn't mean the relationship has to be fixed because there's something that the other person has to do. But have you done everything in your power to be redeemed or reconciled to that person? What's interesting here is Jesus doesn't say if you have something against your brother. He says if you realize someone has something against you, go. Go. It doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. It doesn't, the nuances and the intricacies of the relationship and, and, and the fight and the brokenness doesn't matter. You go. But I know that this is a hard thing to do. It's like one of the last things we want to do. I hate having to say sorry. But I've got to do it often. Because the brokenness and the hurt that I carry not doing that and the death to relationships that comes if I don't make right is significant. And that leads us to the fourth and final point. Reconciliation is not just important, it is urgent. And Jesus ends this section in our text this morning with a little parable. He says this, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Your adversary may hand you over to the judge otherwise, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and they might throw you into prison, and truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Settle matters quickly while you are still on the way. Jesus is not teaching about the specific situation, the specific situation only if you're being sued. Go sort it out quickly. He's using this as a parable. It's applicable to all areas of life. What's being stressed here is the urgency with which you need to be reconciled and the detriment and consequences of not doing that. That's what this mini parable is giving us. If you allow pride to stop you, if you're waiting for better days, if you're dragging your feet, if you're twiddling your thumbs, if you're waiting for them, that other person, to come to you, and you're holding off reconciliation, even though you desire it, Jesus says you're playing with fire. The consequences, Jesus says, for leaving things unresolved and for not acting now are severe. In this person's case, whoever it was, they're being sued or they're going to court. If that is sorted out, they might have to pay a price, yeah, sure. Their pride in their pocket, for sure. But that's so much better than eventually getting to court and being judged by the judge and being chucked into the jail by the officer and spending maybe the rest of your life there or until your debt's paid. Unresolved conflict, church, is like wet drying cement. You're putting something in and it's, you're trying to build something and say that if you've got it wrong 
and you wait for it to dry to fix it, you're going to have a much bigger problem on your hands. There are some poles in my backyard that I put in place to put up a washing line. They're a bit skew, and there's nothing I can do about that because the cement's dry. I have to rip up my garden, buy some new poles, destroy what's currently there, which is functional and working fine. It's just going to be a much bigger schlep. But it's just a washing line. It's not a relationship, so it don't really matter about that. <laughs> Unresolved conflict, if not dealt with seriously and immediately, is like an infection you find in your body that just gets left. It grows. It gets worse. It doesn't just stay isolated. The destruction is greater if you leave it, sometimes even resulting in death and irreconcilable damage. It's like a fire left unchecked. It's like that little rust spot on your car or the leak in your roof. When you see it, you sort that out quickly. Otherwise, my ceiling boards are going to be fraught or my paint's going to rust and I'm not going to get as, money, as much money for my car. But when there's damage in a relationship, we don't deal with that. If not dealt with quickly, it just keeps getting worse. And I know this morning, many people were expecting a Sunday pick-me-up. But I want to challenge you with this. Just because God rebukes you and there's conviction doesn't mean that He's not encouraging you. It doesn't mean that there isn't life. Because more beautiful than receiving a word that makes you maybe feel better is responding to conviction and responding to rebuke and responding to discipline and going and making right the relationship that hasn't been right for years. That's good. And some of you this morning may need to get on the phone and phone family members, phone a brother, a sister, a father-in-law, a mother-in-law. Maybe you just need to go give somebody a hug and say, I'm sorry. Maybe they can't even remember what it's, what's, what's happened, but you know. Maybe they were right, maybe you were right. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we reconcile. What matters is that we love the way Jesus loved. What matters is that we sort that situation out. That's what Jesus says. You cannot come and worship authentically before the Lord if that hasn't been done. Some of us are struggling with connecting with God in worship. But the reason why is because your wife or your spouse, you hate each other. The reason why is because at work, you treat your work colleagues like rubbish because they're not doing what you want them to do and you call them names and maybe they don't know about it, but God does. God sees. Maybe it's a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter that's offended you or you know you've offended them and it might be stupid or silly. They might have taken it and made a storm in a teacup about it, but at the end of the day, the relationship is under strain and you haven't fixed it because your pride is in the way. God says, that's why. That's why the roof feels like bronze when you're praying to me. Go and sort it out. Let us be a people who repent. Trust in the Lord. I love what Phil had to say. God is not sending you away. God is calling you into him to deal with this. God is not rebuking you and saying, you murderer, get away. He's saying, you, you murderous in your heart, come to me, let me sort this out. Let's draw the poison from the wound. Let's heal you so that you can be a healer, a restorer, a life giver, a person who cultivates life and not death. Church, in our country, I just want to end with this point. In our country, if we are ever going to see reconciliation genuinely and a love for one another cross-culturally, cross-racially, cross-genders, if we're going to see that, the church has to start with that. The church has to start with that. 
This is a spiritual thing. When people are killing each other with words at an open public forum and on Facebook and stuff like that about what's going on in our country, it is a spiritual thing. It doesn't matter how clever your argument is. No one's been won over by an intellectual person and their argument because then someone else who's cleverer than you is going to come and win them the other way. This is a spiritual thing. It starts with us. Trust in the Lord. Come to Him. Let Him search your heart. Repent. Receive forgiveness. And go and be an appropriator of life, not death. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. God, I just want to stand in submission and in surrender to you. And I pray for all of us. God, who are in that circle that you've drawn around us. And I want to thank you, God, for your grace, your forgiveness, your life. And I want to ask in Jesus' name that we would respond with obedience and with boldness and with speed. Lord, I pray that we would expedite our repentance and our reconciliation with people. Lord, I want to pray that we would allow our hearts to be tenderized and softened, that we would embrace your rebuke and your correction and your conviction. Holy Spirit, come. And Lord, what flows out of us, may it be life-giving, not murderous. God, what flows out of us, may it be reconciliation and healing. Lord, what we bring to you, may it be authentic and in spirit and in truth. I pray for redeemed relationships, Lord. I pray for restored love. I pray, God, for a community of unity in our church and in our families and in our country. By the grace of God, Lord, we are saved and we trust you. Bless us, Lord. May we find favor in your eyes. Lord, may we see you for who you are and worship you and live a new way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're done this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Allow the word of the Lord to convict you. Don't leave it here. Take it with you. Amen.